Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, cool. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview individuals who have survived hell-ish circumstances and live to tell about it. Today, I have my friend, John Henry here. John, just want to say you are a true legend. You know, I remember when I first got clean, I would see you around and uh the guy who was sponsoring me at the time would whisper like oh man that's john you know that's john henry that's the guy who shot himself and lived so i remember going to meetings and i would see you and people would uh would whisper uh you know that's that guy john that's john that's john like whenever i would hear you or see you speak i would just like it would be like watching like a movie in front of your eyes you know i remember you just always had that aura about you and um even till today you're still that dude so Let's hear your story. All right. Um, my name's John Henry. Hey, John. Um, I'm from Miami, Florida. And thank you, Brian. I'm 65 years old. I grew up in the ghetto in Miami. I had to fight every day. Had it worse than most in my neighborhood because most everybody in my neighborhood had two or three sisters and brothers and they could stick up for them and whatever. I was an only child and my parents are both addicts. It was strange because my neighborhood wasn't poor, but like the average family in my neighborhood, the father had a job where they could pay the bills but not have much left. Mm-hmm. And the mom stayed home and took care of the bad and what kids. area of Florida is this? This is uh, Miami, Florida, 79th Street and 27th Avenue, Northwest. I could just tell you, I remember kids in in, uh, seventh and eighth grade driving cars to school with tattoos and cigarettes rolled up in their sleeve. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids in seventh grade were 16 years old. Wow. Not a lot, but there were there. There was a couple of them, yeah. Right. Like my junior high school was Madison Junior High. And the principal's name was Louis Ilioff, and they called him Three Finger Louie. And I found out why, because he had a couple fingers missing, and he had a stiff neck. He would, you know, he couldn't turn his neck too good. And I found out that some students a few years before I went there jumped him, broke his neck, and cut off two of his fingers. Holy shit. Okay. And this is how bad, tough schools were back then and the teachers and principals they cut off the principal's fingers two of them holy shit that's crazy and broke his neck wow but think about in middle school junior high wow think about this well you know i don't know if it was in junior high when that happened i know he was the principal of my junior (laughs) high yeah and uh, think about this. Today, if that was to happen, he would have a huge lawsuit. He would never be in school grounds again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would pat him on the head. And he just went on teaching. and, being and He became the principal. Wow. You know, my shop teacher, Mr. Stone, had a wooden leg, and it was really made out of wood. And he had a couple fingers missing as well. 
From shop class? Yeah, but I'm sure he cut it off on the saw mm -hmm. and the wooden leg. And he was a mean <laughs> guy. I'm telling you, I used to stand in the parking lot in the sun with my arms straight out like I was being hung on a cross uh -huh. with books on the top of my hand. And if I lower my arms, you would slap me. Wow. Yeah. It was wild. Was this a Catholic school or this no, is a public school? Public school, Madison Junior High. Wow. And if you came home and told your parents that happened, that they were abusing you at school, well, your, the parents would abuse you, abuse you for being <laughs> bad. Plus, that happened, so you, everybody kept their mouth shut because uh -huh. you didn't want to get it twice. Gotcha. Brian, you're good at this. You, you're hey, getting a lot you. out of me. I, I like hearing you talk, man. I, I, I really drive with you. Thank you. You get, you get things out of me. So my family was more different than any other family in my neighborhood because we were like the rich people, mm -hmm. and I was an only child. Uh, my father was a union pipe fitter. My mom worked at the post office, and my mother's mother lived with us, and she had a job. She worked at Richard's department store. So, you know, I got new bicycles. I got everything. I got all these outside things. Now, I can tell you, I never wanted to be alive ever. I was like, how did I end up here on earth with these people? Uh, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't like this. And I just wish that I would die. That didn't happen. So what I did was try to fix myself on the outside, the new bicycle, motorcycle, mini bike, girlfriend, whatever it was, it was always an outside fix. I always got whatever I wanted. I, if I'd be on a mission for something, I end up with it. And when I got it in a short period of time, I, I wasn't happy with it. I was on to something else. Now people around me had things and got things that weren't as nice as what I had and they took care of it and it was still in good shape, whether it's a bicycle, a car, whatever it was later. And mine was trashed like instantly. And people used to say, how come you don't take care of your stuff? What's going on? I didn't have an answer for them. I didn't know. I didn't know I was an addict and I had the disease of addiction or whatever. I just knew that. And, I there's, didn't and there's something rewarding when you like sabotage something like, you know, I remember as a kid having like the same type of behavior where like my dad would buy me something nice and I would spray paint it or something or do something fucked up to it. You know, like I just got off on like building it up and turning it down. No, that wasn't the case for me. The case for me was it let me, I didn't know it, but now looking back, mm -hmm. it let me down. It didn't fix me. Gotcha. So that's why I didn't take care of it. And everybody around me would say, oh, my God, how come you don't take care? How come you're not nice to your girlfriend? How come, you know, you do this? How come you do that? And I didn't have an answer. And I used to look and, like, wonder, like, how come I can't be like these people around me that are, like, happy with what they got and they're responsible and they do the right thing? How come I can't do that? I didn't know. It was a bad place to be. Anyways... Uh, hunting and fishing. When I was five years old, I had my own gun. It was a bolt action 22 rifle. It was in the closet of my bedroom. When I was 11, I killed my first deer and I hunted and fished with my father and did a lot of illegal activities. In Miami, we made moonshine. If there was a scam to make money, my dad was in it uh. and I was involved with him. Now, you got to understand, Miami. It's like some Huckleberry Finn shit. Right. But Miami back, <laughs> you got to understand Miami in the 
I was born in 1955, so mainly Miami in 1960. The Cubans really hadn't come over here from Cuba yet, and Miami was a, it was like a hick town, it was really. Redneck. It was rednecks and Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Jews from New York and the rednecks. I'm kind of putting them all together, but that's kind of how what I was exposed to. Mm-hmm. Also, my family, they were here for the Depression and the war. So they seen things and they were really freaked out about money, communism, whatever. I mean, my mother was a member of the John Burke Society, which was like a mellow Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to go to the John Burke Society meetings with her when I was like wow. five, six years old. I seen real film footage of communists taking over villages in Vietnam and stuff that would just scare you to death. My family was pushed into all this fear uh, there's going to be no money. The communists are going to take over. Uh, we're going to be at war, you know. So any bit of money you can and hold on to it and food, whatever it is, you know, that's all I ever heard is save your money, boy, and I'll do all this. So I did all these things with my dad that were illegal, and he gave me an even share of the money, mm-hmm. even one of his friends. Even as a kid? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and he would always say, now save your money, boy. And I never did. You know, and back then and still today, the real country people I know, they call everybody boy. And it's nothing degrading. That's just boy. Mm-hmm. You know, my father was uh, a real country person. My father's from Miami, and so was my grandfather. Well, my grandfather really was from Ebo or City or Ebo. It's by Tampa. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I didn't save my money. I used it on whatever outside thing I could get that I thought would make me happy, and it never did. And my dad taught me things like uh, whenever you do something illegal, don't do it with anybody else. That way no one can turn you in, you know, all kind of stuff. Like as a little kid, I didn't really think about this till, I don't know, 15 years ago or something when I'd be asked to tell my story or someone would ask me questions from my past life and I would tell them some things is I was 11 years old, maybe 12, and I was with my father. We were almost to the west coast of Florida in a place called Copeland, was where they had the Copeland Road Prison, which is where the movie Cool Hand Luke was filmed. Love that movie. That was right there where we hunted. That's how it used to be in prison back here. Mm-hmm. So anyways, we're, Copeland is nowhere. Where we hunted, uh, it was a logging trail. And if I walked or someone that really didn't know what they were doing hunting, even if a grown person, if they walked 25, 30 yards off that trail, there's a good chance they'd never be seen again. Wow. That was that dense. But my father was a serious hunter, and he knew the woods. So me, him, and his buddy Gary, who was a union sheet metal guy, smoked a pipe. And my dad used to make moonshine with him, too. So we're out at night hunting deer out of season and killing does, whatever. And I remember we'd sell the deer for 25 bucks a piece or keep the meat, keep the hide, and just poaching gators, all this stuff. And my father was like... Uh, was the wildlife, like, thing serious back then? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. You mean the enforcement of yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They used to kill the game wardens. Wow. The game wardens would come out there and do stuff they'd never be seen again. And they kill them? Oh, yeah. 
And there's there's songs about it even. Okay. Holy shit. Yeah. There's one song. Uh, the catchphrase in it is if the guy killed somebody and he ran away to the Everglades and they never found him or whatever, mm-hmm. if he got away and the, the, the like catchphrase in it is if the skeeters don't get you, then the gators will. Wow. Anyways, we're poaching at night. And my father was a guy that had zero fear. He might have had fear, but he showed zero fear. And later on, I'll get to that about fear and uh, being brave and having courage of what I learned about that. So anyways, we're out there poaching, and we would hunt at night. We'd kill the deer and that, and my father would never drink or anything. We was hunting and fishing when it was over, yeah, but not never nothing like that. On our way back, we'd stop at this place called Monroe Station, and my old man and his friends would be drinking beers, and I'd be drinking a little Coca-Cola in the glass bottle. If it was a male deer, we'd cut the balls off the deer, and we'd stop by where the game warden shack was and hang them on the doorknob to, like, wow. mess with them. My dad was, like, wild. We're out there at night hunting, and my dad taught me, now, boy, when you shoot, you only make one shot. And make it count because if we're sitting here now and you hear a gunshot, you're going to look around and not really know where it came from. But when you hear the second shot, you'll know exactly the direction it came from. My wow. dad was good. Wow. He never got caught. He's dead. And he got all that money for everything he ever did. He never got caught. We make the shot. And as soon as we do, we can hear the walkie talkies in the distance. We could hear the equipment because they were out to get him. Mm-hmm. And they were all around us. They were so close we could hear their voices. Now this is pitch black. Yeah, that's what I was getting to. At night, out there, unless there's a big moon, when you cut your headlight off, you can't see your hand in front of your face. So we cut our light off. We sat on the ground. My dad smoking his red Marlboro. His buddy Gary smoking his pipe. I got a Browning 12-gauge semi-automatic shotgun. A Browning 22 pistol on my side. My dad's got a 22 rifle and a pistol, 357, whatever. We're loaded for bear. That's what we used to call it, loaded for bear. <laughs> so uh, I'm scared, right? I'm scared. I'm 11 years old, maybe 12, but I think I was 11 because he bought me that gun when I was 11. And I whispered to my dad, Dad, what happens if they walk up on us? What are we going to do? And he leans over to me and he goes, Shame on them. Bad news will beat them home. I'm like, <laughs> whoa. That means we're going to kill them. I didn't have to, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, and if my dad said do that, that's, you know, that's what I'd do. Mm-hmm. But it didn't happen. They didn't come up on us, thank God. You know, because they would take your car, your house, whatever. You, I mean, big trouble for doing what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I think the night hunting, they also call it fire hunting. I think that law got passed because one of my relatives on my dad's side, they were all out hunting at night and they were drinking and drunk and mm-hmm. one blew the other guy's head off. Wow. And that's what I was told, whether it's true or not, I don't know. That's how that's that what, law came into wow. things. So I, I seen some things. Before I forget, because I forget things, I want to talk a little bit about fear unhealthy fear, courage, bravery, all that type of stuff, which I didn't know anything about. What I found out is my father and myself 
grew up in a life with a lot of fear and a lot of bad stuff going on. And I got put in positions where there was a lot of fear and a lot of stuff going on that was really scary. And I got in that situation so many times that it, you know, I kind of got used to it. It wasn't as bad. I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta do something, you know, there's four of them. I gotta fight them, you know, and whatever. So I make sure that like I get one and hurt him really bad maybe and the others will run, who knows. Mm-hmm. But what I found out was for me, courage comes from having fear and walking through the fear. Like this interview, I, you know, like it's a little whatever, creepy or weird, but know. you know what? It don't really matter. It I don't appreciate really- you doing it. I know it's not <laughs> something you're probably dying to do. But, right, but it's still okay. So I developed courage by walking through stuff I didn't want to. And I believe there's healthy fear. And people say, oh, fear is lack of faith. No, it's not. Unhealthy fear is lack of faith. Like I have fear of using, I have fear of walking in front of a train. Okay. And that's not unhealthy. Unhealthy fear is like afraid to say something that, you know, like something's bothering me or, you know, doing business, speak Mm -hmm. up for myself and get the amount of money I'm supposed to be getting paid because I work for myself. After all these years of working on myself, I've learned there's healthy fear, unhealthy fear, a lot of stuff that just comes up in life. God gets blessed. You know, I think God was punishing me or or God was testing me. Mm -hmm. Just my opinion. I really don't think that God is like looking down saying, Oh, John Henry really thinks he's got it going on. Let me test him. Yeah. I mean, I really don't think that happens. What I think happens is I make bad decisions and do stupid things, and I get myself in a position to looking to blame why this happened instead of taking responsibility that it was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God had nothing to do with it. No, no. And the devil gets blamed for a lot of yeah. stuff, too. You know, oh, the devil, this or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, oh, my disease. My mm-hmm. disease had me do that. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's funny. My mind's just jumping around. When it comes to the disease and had me do it, this and that, I've learned a lot of stuff. And one thing is when I was introduced to recovery, the first time was June 1973. Mm-hmm. You know, they talked about what to do to get recovery. And, you know, if I did what they told me to do, then I would have had recovery then, which means I went to a thing where they had a, it was called Promise Keepers. It was a Christian thing with 50,000 people at the Thunderdome. And my friend talked me into going, so I went, I really don't want to go. But I went, it was for two days. And they had these 12 speakers, like the 12 steps, 12 Mm -hmm. apostles, whatever. Uh, football coach or something, but really famous. So anyways, he said, if you want to learn something, get the information, whatever it is, and practice doing it. And that's how you'll learn it. And he goes, and if you really want to be good at it, once you learn it, start teaching it. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get even better. It's like, I thought that was mind boggling. I thought, wow. So that's a big thing for me with recovery, I hear people, they say, I'm struggling. Well, most people I know in life that are struggling, it's because they're not doing anything to take care of it. Not saying you can't get cancer mm-hmm. and your wife leave you and your house catch on fire, whatever. 
you know, that could be a bit of a struggle. But most of the time, when I hear people struggling or I'm struggling myself, it was because of a bad decision or something I'm not doing most of the time. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, no one's perfect. So it'd be weird if you didn't have situations that you made a bad decision or whatever. It's part of life, you know, and I think that as an addict, we get like obsessed with like perfection. And like we think that, that because we know these things that we should always make the right decision. I don't even believe in like the real right or wrong. I just feel like there were things that were a little impulsive. And it's okay to do something impulsive because sometimes you learn not to be impulsive by doing some impulsive things. And uh, sometimes you do things because it feels good. And sometimes you do things because you had, you know, you trusted somebody a little too much. But uh, at the end of the day, as long as you take accountability for what you could have done different, then you could start getting better at certain aspects. But if you start thinking that it's this person's fault every time, you're never going to get your side of the street cleaned up. Well, you said something very, very good there. Just what you said. I've done that. I've been in them situations. And the thing is, when something comes up that I made a bad decision or I was in the wrong place, at wrong, whatever it may be, if I fall back on what I've been taught in life is what is the solution? Move on. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. Or I could go and tell a hundred people about it, how bad it is and what it's going Play through the victim and yeah. nothing changes. Mm -hmm. And it's just like anything else. You know, you do something over time, over time, you start to think like, well, what happened last time this happened? And how did I, you know, act this way? But at the same time, you can't prevent yourself from learning if you don't go into those situations and make the mistakes you know so a lot of times people play the safe road and they never really grow and they're kind of the same person for 10 15 20 years because they don't try different things and the guy who fucks up all the time gets it right that one time yes i remember not staying clean and going to meetings and there was this lady she's not with us anymore her name was honey I remember her. And she was my mother's sponsor. Wow. Yeah, that's like a woman that like impacted thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, she was on welfare and couldn't stay clean and got clean and went to law school and became a lawyer. Mm -hmm. She's a badass. She was cool. And she told me, she goes, John, I know you're not able to stay clean, but go to the recovery meetings, sit in the front and listen, and one day you'll get this. And when she said that, I did that. I, I went every day. I sat in the front. I never could stay clean. And then, you know, finally I got a sponsor and, and got into recovery, mm -hmm. actual physical doing things. And But I, I still do all the things today that I was taught when I was new. Nothing's changed. So let's go back to the story. Uh, so what happened that night? How'd you guys get away? We didn't get away. They didn't find us. We they just sat there you. and kept our mouth shut. Right. They didn't was... walk up on us. And what happens after that? You're 11, 12 years old at that point. The reason I brought that story up is to let you know how I was raised, and I'm not blaming my mom or dad of or course. anything, to let you know the stuff that I went through as a little kid. When I was five years old, I knew every curse word there was and basically what they meant. Mm -hmm. Being that young age and being exposed to all these things when it came up to drugs and everything— and, you know, all my friends were at least three or four, five, ten years older than me. Not to that degree, but I grew up, I, I was driving a car in fifth grade. You know, I was smoking crack at 14. I was buying my first eight ball at 13. I grew up very quickly and uh, wanted to do what the adults were doing. You know, like we talk about acceptance. I could never accept that I was young. 
I could never accept my age growing up. Like if somebody was like, oh, well, you're not old enough to do that. I like couldn't even wrap my head around that. Like I was driving. Like I didn't even think about it. I'm taking the keys and I didn't, no one taught me how to drive. I took the keys and put it in the car and backed it out. I didn't know that it, you know, rolled in neutral and uh, hit a mailbox first time I drove, but I made it around the block, you know. I was a little kid in a grown-up world, mm -hmm. just thrown into it. And what I did was whatever I had to do to survive and get along and blend in and whatever, because, like, my friends were, like, well, we were famous back then, the ghetto boys. Mm -hmm. We were white kids that grew up in the ghetto, and, and people knew the neighborhood and whatever, and everybody feared all those people because it's like when you were raised in such a bad situation that anything that comes up into your life is like a, you know, like someone threatens you, you're like, really? <laughs> this is a joke, isn't it? You know, because we dealt with that every day. So when the drugs and that came along, back then you had different groups of people. You had hippies. You had addicts. Addicts were people from New York that did heroin. <laughs> then you had greasers. Those were guys that had hot rods and motorcycles with their hair combed on the side and their shirt sleeve rolled up and they drank beer and they had cigarettes in their sleeve. And, you know, you had straight people. And I was just in with it all. And when I first started getting high, you know, I said, well, I'll never stick a needle in my arm. I'll never do this. I'll never do that. By the time I was 15 years old, I was shooting heroin and hanging right. out on 59th Street and 12th Avenue. How did it progress so fast? Like, like you woke up one day and did coke and like the next year just... How did it progress? The first thing I ever did was sniff glue, wow. testers glue. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, smoking weed. The first time I smoked a joint, when they handed me the joint and I took a hit off of it, we were standing on the sidewalk and a cop drove by. And so he's 10 feet away. He's looking right in my eye as I'm taking a hit off of this. And he kept going for some reason. And you'd think that I would be smart, like, oh, it's a message from God. I shouldn't be doing mm -hmm. this, but no. Yeah, I kept doing it. Right. So... How it progressed was the outside fix, not knowing just like, oh, this is good. I like that. Oh, this makes you feel this, you know, and the people and the environment. I mean, when I started shooting dope, I was hanging out with, with pimps and prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had most people don't know what this is. When I was 16 years old, when I turned 16, my father bought me an Opal GT which looks just like a Corvette Stingray, but they're really little. And they were made by Buick for like two years only. Uh -huh. And it was like the coolest car. So, you know, and I just uh, surfing, uh, selling drugs, just you name it. And I got to tell you, when I first started getting high and doing it, man, it was exciting. It was fun. The money flowed. We had the best drugs, women, everything. I got to see Jimi Hendrix at Miami High Live when I was 15 years old. And I was probably 30 feet away from him. And I remember me and my next door neighbor, Jackie, because his mom was real strict and my mom was cool. We had his mother drop us off and my mom picked Pick us, us up because we'd be high. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the tickets were, I think, $3 or $3.50. Well, to see Jimi Hendrix? Yes. And uh, there were so many people there that they started breaking in through the ceiling through the skylight to come into the concert. Wow. It was crazy. And so anyways, me and Jackie, we had some hash. We'll smoke the hash, throw the pipe away, and then go in. That way we don't get caught with no drugs. When we got in there, man, there were people, we were little kids. We we're 15. Mm -hmm. Everybody's handing us drugs. And, yeah, you thought there was no drugs inside? Well, yeah, we just, we were scared, <laughs> you know. 
anyways, I got to do a lot of cool stuff, exciting things, drag racing. I mean, uh, you've probably heard of Don Garlitz. He's probably the most famous drag racer in the mm -hmm. whole world. I got to see him and hang out with him quite often. He would be down here drag racing on Sundays right by where I grew up. Wow. But the thing is, by the time I was shooting dope, say 16, when I was 16, I got arrested. I did two and a half years possession of marijuana. The fun was over like by the it's time fun. I was yeah. 16. I was paying consequences for the whole time, not knowing that I was an addict and, and keep getting high and, and keep living a, a criminal lifestyle. You name it. I mean, I remember I had a lot of opportunities because I knew a lot to be in with the smuggling scene mm -hmm. where the money was huge and you know, and I never would do that. I stayed, I was afraid. Thank God. You know, I was like, dude, if you get caught in another country or whatever, you know, it's over. What look what happened to me at 16 doing two and a half years for possession of marijuana. How much marijuana? Two and a half ounces. Wow. It was a two years for two and a half ounces of marijuana. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. What happened was I was 16. That's a year an ounce. Right. I was 16 years old and I got busted. And what it was is my friends and the people I was with were really heavy duty criminals. Mm -hmm. And the cops were watching what was going on. And I guess they seen this kid driving his Opal GT. And my best friend who was five years older than me had an Eldorado with a $2,000 paint job. Mm -hmm. This is like unheard, unheard of, of back yeah. then. And we all lived in the ghetto mm -hmm. and everybody had hair to their waist. You know, we were like stood out. So I guess the man saw this and they said, oh, well, we'll get this kid and we'll grab him. We'll scare him to death and he'll Snitch set up everybody friends. and we'll get them all. Well, I didn't say a word. I was a hero because I didn't snitch, but I did two and a half years. That was scary. That was scary. So when you go to prison, is it juvenile? I'll explain that. And I didn't go to prison. I went to Dade County Jail, mm -hmm. which I found out later was worse. I didn't know that. <laughs> But back then, there was no air conditioning. Well, Dade County Jail had air conditioning, but they sent me the stockade. There was no air conditioning. The building, I think, was built in the 30s. They had state, county, federal prisoners mixed. The guy that slept next to me had life for three murders. And I was 16 when I got busted, so they put me in a drug program. It was called The Seed. Google The Seed and see what they tell you about mm -hmm. it, how a lot of the people that went through there ended up murdering their parents wow. for putting them in there. Yes. Wow, Very it was bad. that bad? Yes. Holy shit. Okay, so I was in, you know, by the time I went to court process and all that, then they put me in the seed for a year and a half. And two weeks after I turned 18, I went back in front of the judge and figured I'm going to get released from all this because one of the sentence was, must complete the seed program. So the judge said, well, oh, I got something better for you. I'm like, oh, this is great. Okay, cool. He goes, uh, a year in Dade County Jail. I'm 135 pounds with long hair that was feathered like Farrah Fawcett. And they put me in there. Now, you know, I grew up, you know, being around people where I had to survive. But still, I'd never been locked up. Mm -hmm. And th these guys were like, you know, a lot of them were 200 pounds with muscles all over them, tattoos, beards, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't drink coffee. I didn't have no beard. I didn't have no tattoos. You know, I'm sure people weren't afraid of me by looking at me. But <laughs> all I can tell you, I remember being on the bus going from Dade County Jail to Dade County Stockade 
chained to the floor and to another prisoner, no air conditioning in the bus, and everybody in the bus is yelling at everybody on the streets and stuff. And they were all, everybody there was like at home, Mm -hmm. like we're in schools, like this is normal. And I'm like, oh my God. But I'm not going to say to the guy next to me, dude, I'm scared. Aren't Mm -hmm. you scared? Going in there, I got so many stories. My first night in there, I'm laying in my, back then it was kind of like, it was the old days. They would lock you down. You didn't go out of your cell for a week or two. I imagine it's like Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, kind of. Except the prisoners ran the show. The guards didn't run Mm -hmm. the show. The guards just locked the door and stuff like that. Yeah, the prisoners ran. There was more dope in there in the stockade than there was on the street. I mean, and is the, this is like a pod. Well, there was, or was it like a big open room. Th- there was four or five different pods, but when you first go in, you go to C block, mm-hmm. which is where they got you locked up for like a week, so you don't try to escape. They get after. the rabbit out of you. There you go. You must have heard me say this before. That's from the movies too. Mm-hmm. And so you won't try to escape, and then you get a job in the laundry room, whatever maybe. <laughs> but I didn't know all this. I didn't know what was coming. All I know, my first night there, when the lights went out. As soon as the lights went out, this guy comes over to me and he grabs my arm and he goes with a deep voice, he goes, hey man, my name's Killer. You want to smoke a joint? Uh, I said, yeah, but I wanted to say, no, Killer, I don't. I'm in here for drugs and uh, (laughs) I'm going to change my life and you should do the same thing. I said, yeah. So we smoked the joint, found out he had been in Rayford, which is North Florida prison for like 25, 30 years. Wow. They would bring you down from Rayford, you go to the stockade, and then from the stockade, they'd take you to Dade County Jail to get released. Wow, so this guy just did 20, 30 years? Yeah. I mean, I met guys in there that looked like Fonzie and Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. and I'd say to the other prisoners, why do they look like that and dress like that with these sideburns? And then they go, because when they locked, got locked up, that's how it was on the street. They don't know they that, don't know that it's times different. have changed. Wow. Yeah, it was like the Twilight Zone. I'm like freaking out. I'm like, oh shit. But anyways, I fell asleep and about five o'clock in the morning, the door opened and they yelled, chow. I didn't know what that meant. It means breakfast. So everybody jumped up. Now you got to understand, I was wearing the prison clothes, not jail clothes back then, like with the white stripe down the leg, like you see in the movies. And all this stuff was huge on me because I was a skinny 135 pound drug addict. So these clothes were just hanging on me. And so I, you know, they all jumped up. So I jumped up. I just tried to blend in, right? This was like the movies, kind of like in Shawshank Redemption, where the prisoners first come in and the ones that are there are waiting on the fence to see who yeah. they brought in the fresh meat. The it was fish. Exactly yeah. like that. So I'm like, oh no. So anyway, I'm just looking at the guys back in front of me and I got my East unit look, that's from Rayford, you know, my mean mug, they call it nowadays, but so no one would fuck with me because I'm so tough. And I'm just looking at the guys back in front of me, and it's a sidewalk, like three feet wide, with a chain link fence on each side, and on the top of that is barbed wire. And these prisoners are all on each side of that fence, holding on to the fence, shaking it and yelling at all the new guys. And I'm like, oh, man. So anyways... I kind of looked to the right and left out of the corner of my eye at these people, and I knew half of them. Like the guy, you know, Johnny, who went away to that special school in Philadelphia mm-hmm. because he was so smart. No, he didn't. He's in Dade County. <laughs> He's Stockade. in prison. Yeah. yeah, or prison, whatever. Uh, two of my heroin connections were in there. One of them was in my cell. 
you know, it was just like, then it's not. You eased up a little bit. Yeah, it's like, uh, I really wasn't scared to begin with. <laughs> you know, like an addict is a person, in my opinion, that like, they'll do anything to get into treatment and anything for, oh, I'm so sorry. And, oh, thank you, judge. And oh, thank you, mom and dad. And, you know, oh, yeah. And as uh, soon as the coast is clear, they're back to their mm -hmm. old behavior. Yeah. Anyway, so I met the worst people in there. I had a judge in my cell. He used to wear a new pair of shoes every day. Wow. And smugglers. And you, it was crazy because people like, oh, my God. They found out that their smuggling connection the guy is the guys in the cell, these dudes, Randy and Otis, and this other guy, Robert. And they, you know, it was like, it was crazy. Yeah. On Sundays, you know, we'd get visitors, and the visitors would be buying drugs from the inmate. A guy that slept by me in my cell, his uncle was a guard there. His brother was in Vietnam, and his mother would come to visit him every Sunday and bring a letter from his brother in Vietnam. That's heroin. Yeah, Ryan's a genius. I know. Had a gram of China White in it. Wow. And let me tell you, a gram of China White goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting pretty with all that. And... um Nothing changed in my life. I just learned to be a worse person. The guy that had life for three murders taught the PMA course, Positive Mental Attitude. His name uh -huh. was Dave Evans. I'll never forget it. He was 32 years old. And I thought, dude, that guy's old. <laughs> okay. I remember they had weights there in the yard. And they have all the weight that they had there on the bar. And he would be benching it with this fat guy sitting on the bar. Wow. Okay. He must have been huge. He was huge. And he wasn't that tall either. But he came to me and he goes, hey, you know, and he didn't do drugs or drink or nothing. And he goes, you know, if you don't change your life, you're going to be, change what you do. You're going to be in here for the rest of your life. And you're in here and you're hanging out with the worst people. And it's pretty bad when you're locked up and you're with the worst people in there. Mm -hmm. You know, like you got 800 people, I think, or 600 there was in there. And the top 10 bad ones was who I hung with. Mm -hmm. My disease ran my life and I did what I was told. One of the best stories, and the lady died like two years ago. Her name was Claire Medan. And there's a law called the Medan Act. She had red hair and she had a raspy heroin alcohol voice, cigarette voice. Every dog like that. So I'm in my cell and it's a, you know, it just got dark and the guard comes and opens the door. And comes into the cell with this lady. And she goes, you boys want to go to the meeting? And like half of them jumped up and left with her and the guard to go to the meeting. I'm like, what was that? So a couple minutes later, the door opens back up. There was probably 40 of us in the cell. 20 went, say. Now there's 20 sitting in the cell. Mm -hmm. And door opens back up. And she comes in. She just leans in and looks. And she looks right at me. And she goes, what about you? Do you want to go to the meeting? And I'm like, this is weird. This lady's staring at me, asking me, do I want to go to the meeting? And then she goes, we have cookies. Now, when she said, we have cookies, I said, yeah, I'll go to the meeting. Now, I didn't think about it then, but I must have really looked like a little kid out of place to be enticed with, we cookies. got cookies. <laughs> so anyways, I went to the meeting. I bought a joint for a dollar at the meeting, ate the cookies. I did drink coffee, but I dipped them. Like good. a joint of cigarette or like Weed, marijuana? Wow. Marijuana. <laughs> that was my first meeting ever. But the funny thing is there was 
two guys in that meeting. They were much, everybody was older than me. Mm -hmm. One guy was Russell and his brother, and they were carpenters and real rednecks, real rednecks. And 15 years later, I was on the outside in a meeting and I heard this guy speaking and I looked and it was him. And he had been straight ever since that meeting. Wow. He just recently died a few years ago. Wow. That was wild. That was wild. Anyways, I got out of there and kept doing all the bad things. Now the highlight of my story, which Brian's heard it before. I love hearing it. My, my claim to fame. So my life was so bad, I said to myself, well, I'm going to kill myself. How and old I, are you at this point? How old was I then when I wanted to kill myself? Mm-hmm. Well, I always didn't want to kill myself, but this time I would say maybe 22. So you get out of prison, keep using, obviously, life gets really bad, 22 years old? Yeah, maybe 21. No, about 22, about 22. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, well, I'm going to eat 50 quaaludes on an empty stomach. Not I ate 50, not 49, not 51, exactly 50 on an empty stomach, drank a few glasses of water. I didn't tell people, you know, I'm thinking about killing myself. So they would tell me how great I am and I shouldn't mm-hmm. do that because I just didn't want to be here. And I'd heard that and 50 it, quaaludes is an insane amount, right? Well, if you eat 50 quaaludes and they're not able to pump your stomach, there ain't no way you're possibly going to live. They absorb into the fatty tissue of your body and you're dead. It's, what is the quaalude compared? Like people say it's like Xanax, but then people who do quaaludes no, said it's not like Xanax. No. Quaalude is a hypnotic, okay? <laughs> you smiled all crazy when you said that. I don't smile crazy because I can tell you what, if you if I were to give you one right now, as soon as you come down from it, you want another. They were. What does it feel deal. like? soon as you start to feel that your fingers will tingle, your face will tingle, you'll get sexually aroused. Really? Oh, yeah. They used to call them leg spreaders. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street. I've, I've read the book and I've seen the movie. i put it this way. The paint and body companies in, uh, in the United States made a fortune off of the Quaaludes because everybody was crashing their cars. Wow. It was like all the cars around had dents in them. From being all fucked up. Being fucked up on quaaludes. Being, yeah, and they had stress clinics and all kind of things to get them. And let me tell you, when you took one, you weren't feeling no stress. <laughs> all the drugs that I liked are the ones that took feelings away and mm-hmm. changed my feelings. I didn't like Coke and all that stuff because it, it intensified feelings, but I did tons of it anyway. Mm-hmm. I took the 50 quaaludes. They didn't find me for six, eight, or 10 hours later. And by the time they found me, they- Who found you? Some people were coming to buy drugs or something, and they broke the door down. Wow. You know, he's in there or something, whatever. Matter of fact, I think one of them was the guy that I got the quaaludes from, and he wanted his money. Wow. And my other friends wanted to kill him. I mean, it it was bad. But I was in a coma, so I didn't know all this stuff was going on. Wow. So when you, they pumped your stomach? No. Oh my God. That's what's crazy. By the time they found me, it was six or eight hours later, and I drank wow. a bunch of water in my stomach. It was too late to pump your stomach. They said white foam was coming through my skin and my eyes wow. from the quaaludes. Because, like I told you, what I was told is quaaludes absorb into the fatty tissue of your body. I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but that's what I was told. Mm-hmm. But I do know it's a hypnotic that I know. So they told my mom. And now, my girlfriend at the time was a, 
x-ray technician at North Shore Hospital, which was the same hospital where I was born. And the same hospital, I used to go see her at work during the day. You know, all I did was sell drugs and get high and sell quaaludes and all kinds of drugs to all the employees that worked there and eat at the cafeteria because they had the black ladies there making some good soul food. I loved that kind of food. So I was eating fried chicken Mm -hmm. and gravy and stuff. And so now the guy that they're getting all these drugs from is brought in there and he's going to die. Wow. You know, so there was too late to pump my stomach. And they told my mom, don't pray for him to live. If he lives, he'll be a vegetable for the rest of his life. I was in a coma for three and a half days. I sat up out of the coma like nothing ever happened. Left the hospital, continued to do my thing. Then a few years went by, not many. Well, years after that, you kept using. Oh, yeah. Mainly heroin? Or what was the drug of my, my drug choice was... Uh, Two and alls, which is the sleeping pill, quaaludes, heroin, methadone, marijuana. But, you know, I liked heroin the best because, mm-hmm. you know, Lou Reed says it all. When I was rushing on my run, I felt like Jesus' son. Yes. And that was me. Del- but you know what? My main thing was Delauded. Delauded. I could say my father's dead now, so I can say it. I mean, the Department of Professional Regulations, this guy got me. His name was John P. McDow. And I heard nowadays he's like in charge of everything in the United States. I saw a thing on TV and it showed him like, whoa. Because he grabbed me at the Rooney Plaza and he said, you know, you and your father have flooded the market down here. And I'm like, you said that, not me. (laughs) They couldn't do nothing to me. They didn't catch me doing anything, but they knew. You guys were selling a lot of Dilaudid? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember going to do a meeting in a prison, and there was this, you know, everybody in prison's got all their hair cut off. They all look the same. Mm -hmm. And a guy walks up to me and goes, Dilaudid to meet you. Wow. It was a guy I knew. Wow. You know, it was so funny he said that. But anyways, that was my thing. That's funny. Oh, my father taught me something. Now, boy, when you go in the bathroom, first thing you do is put that seat down. You know why, right, Brian? So if they come in there, you could... No, so you don't drop your dope in the toilet. Ah, uh, there you go. Okay. So anyways, a uh, few years went by. It always got worse. So I said, I'm going to get a pistol. I'm going to go in the bathroom, and I'm going to shoot myself between the eyes because there's no way anybody could live through that. I've seen deer get killed with a 22, one shot and fall and mm-hmm. never twitch. I thought about it for a week or two, perfectly straight, and the house was, I was living with these uh, two lesbian dope fiends that used to buy dope from my father. They were much older than me, Bobby and Carol. It was uh, Mayo Street, three blocks west of 441, second house from the corner. And I uh, went in the bathroom, shot myself between the eyes. Mm-hmm. I got up off the floor. I looked, and there was a hole dead center of my eyes with blood squirting a stream as big as my thumb. What kind of gun did you use? 25 caliber. It was a 25 caliber, so it's smaller than a 22? Or it's bigger than a 20? A 25 caliber is bigger around in diameter. But it's the same length? No, uh, it's a little less than a 380. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So they took me to Hollywood Memorial. I put a, a butterfly Band-Aid over the hole, left the hospital, continued to get high. On and on and on. So May 8th of 1987, I went and... When, when you ahead. didn't die, like, what did you... Th- what were you thinking? 
The funny thing is, being an addict. Were you in a lot of pain? Like, no, no. You didn't feel any pain from it. No, not really. Wow. By the way, the bullet is in the center of my brain as we speak. It's in the center of your brain right now. Yes. Holy shit! Because okay. I've seen the X-ray. I'll post it when I post this. That's you have it. seen the X-ray? I've seen the X-ray. Yeah, it's my favorite. Did you copy it? I, was, yeah, I screenshotted it. Oh, yeah. awesome! Because that's in my other phone. Yeah. But I got new teeth a few years ago. Uh huh. Twenty-two thousand dollar uppers. Wow. Damn. They bro. look good. Yeah, they look. Yeah. Boss. So, anyways, when they did the X-rays for that, the lady goes, "Oh my God, what's wrong here?" I go. What's up, ma'am? I thought something was up. With you me. hadn't seen it prior to that? No. This was like three years ago. Oh, my gosh. So I said, I knew it was in my head, but I didn't know where. You'd never seen it? No. So I said to the lady, what do you mean? I thought something was with my teeth and they can't do it or there's a problem. I go, no. And she goes, what's this? I lean over to the screen where she's got the x-ray. I go, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, that's nothing. Don't that's work. the bullet. She goes, the bullet i go uh, yes ma'am you see the scar right here and it has a front view and a side view do you got both of those screenshots i think i had the side view send okay. me the other one yeah the, the front view it's dead center i mean there's no way no one lives through that now what did this lady say at the dentist's office i don't she, uh, she thought you were crazy i guess she was just thinking i hope you leave soon <laughs> you know i could clear out a room easily if i'm inappropriate can i brian <laughs> you, you can't clear me out of a room <laughs> you baby but yeah so telling the story and thinking about this you know you think i know because i'm a christian i believe in god and you know i believe in the bible and i try to do the right thing in life that like something's going on and this is a miracle and you should change your life and all that but that didn't happen and i know why now because I was in active addiction. And for me, if I'm in active addiction. Totally disconnected. I have a di totally disconnected, but I have a disease that tells me what to do. And I do what I'm told, period. It's so funny. When my dad died in 07, he had this 5.0 GT Mustang, you know, really cool car. He always had a cool car. Even up until his Oh, death. yeah. Yeah. Wow. And. Uh, Did he ever change his ways? Yes, he did. Wow. Yeah. He became a Christian? No. Okay. But I, you know what? I know he, this is funny. It's, I'm getting to that kind of. Uh -huh. So, you know, when he died, my mom's selling the car to get the money for the car, whatever. And I'm driving the car to where we're going to sell it. And he had some CDs in there. So I put it in the CD and it's Grandpa Jones. You got to Google Grandpa Jones Christian songs wow. or gospel songs. Wow. Your He's, dad's listening to the gospel. This most rednecks know all about God and the Bible. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And uh, Grandpa Jones was on a show that was called Hee Haw. Mm -hmm. And they'd say, Hey, Grandpa. And he plays the banjo. Well, I didn't know how talented this guy was and how many songs he'd written and that he was a Christian. And there's a song on there. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's talking about being in life mending the holes in the fence because the devil's always trying to get you wow. and the song saying you know when you go to the other side doing the wrong thing like if you relapse from on drugs or whatever mm -hmm. it's easy to use but it's hard to come back and get clean and stay clean and mm -hmm. that's the whole song and man i heard that i was like oh my god and then i'm thinking yeah maybe my dad 
you know, went to heaven. Maybe my dad is a Christian. You know, I don't mm-hmm. know, but I think he did. I think he's in heaven. My mom, I would bet's there, but you know, just my my thought on it. I think everyone goes to heaven. Mm. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to start talking about the Bible with me, do you? Uh, I don't know. Let's start talking about it. That really makes people uncomfortable. Okay, you brought it on. Here it goes. Mm -hmm. So I'll be at breakfast on a Sunday morning, and there'll be a bunch of church people in there all dressed up and everything, and I always interview them like I interview everybody I ever meet. Mm -hmm. And I say, uh, oh, you're going to church? You just came from the church? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you're a Christian? Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So are you going to heaven? And most of them say what I'm going to tell you, I think so, or I hope so. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, really? And then I say, well, how do you get to heaven? And then they say, well, you got to be a good person and do good things. I'm like, wow, that is not it at all. Mm-hmm. It does not say that in the Bible. No, it says you have to accept Jesus Christ. Into your heart as into your personal your Savior. Your personal and if you do, you're going to heaven. And the, the on, that's, that's the only it. way, period. Yeah, we can't earn our way. I know I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm going to heaven, but I'm probably going to be doing dishes. Yeah, you're definitely doing dishes in heaven. Yeah, see, but it's okay. Maybe doing dishes. Maybe after 100 years, they'll let you do the dishes after you're done. Who knows? And it's the same way with recovery. I hear so many things that are misinformed about recovery. Mm -hmm. It's so black and white, and people have this like... 100%. So how do you stay clean? Well... I need to go to a meeting. I go to, I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, I go to meet recovery. Yeah. I didn't say where I go. I go to recovery because I don't go. break in I, no traditions thank you here. Thank so much. I don't want no one coming by my house saying I was breaking tradition. There you go. So, because we got Nazis. Not everyone is like that. I, I try to get people to, it's okay. Yeah, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I need a meeting. Hmm. Okay, I sometimes I need meetings, and I go to a lot of meetings. I do a lot of things. But basically, what I've heard about recovery is if you want what we got to offer, then you're ready to take certain steps. Mm-hmm. So it's the same as the Bible. And the same as I talked about earlier about learning something. You get the information, and you practice doing it, period. If you want to get really good at it, you help someone else. There you go. You know what my sponsor told me? John, if you don't think your life is good, find somebody less fortunate than yourself and help them. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. That's not what I want to do. I want to still fix myself, which is what I did for years and years mm-hmm. as a newcomer or for the first 10 years in recovery, even after I've worked the steps and everything, I still was doing a lot of outside things to feel better. And as time went by, I realized that wasn't the key. Mm-hmm. And I still am into outside stuff, but it's not. It doesn't run my life. If I lose my four-wheelers or my airboat or my fishing stuff or whatever it is. I just don't expect a key to hit a hammer anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I don't expect the outside things to fix the inside things because they're totally different. You know, it's like going to the hardware store looking for milk. You know, I'm just not doing that anymore. But for years, that's what using is all about. It's like, why is this, why is the milk not at the hardware store? I, I never heard that, but I like that. You like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got another one, but it's so bad that I'm not going to say oh, it. Oh, come when, on. Okay, okay. You want to hear it? Yeah. When I was new, I heard stuff like, if you hang out at a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Yep. 
And then the other thing was, you don't go to a whorehouse to get a bologna sandwich. That's true. That's true. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you go to a whorehouse long enough, you're going to get a whore. Right? There you go. That's better or than become the one. Or become one or mm. something. So, that was really cool. So, your dad did change his life towards the end. Did he ever make amends to you and be like, hey, sorry for uh, teaching you all these scams and giving you guns and all this stuff? You know, that's so funny. He never came... I remember when I made my amends, you know, I worked all 12 steps with my sponsor before I had six months clean Mm -hmm. or in recovery, let's say. In recovery, yes. So uh, when I made amends to my dad, he was like, looked at me like, oh, it's fine. Everything's cool. And the way I was raised, we don't talk about our feelings and personal stuff and Mm -hmm. what's going on. And, you know, everything's a secret. And, but, uh, my father was a he was a rough guy. Country people have a lot of country people have feminine names. My father's real name was Carrie Dora. Wow. Okay. So you think the feminine names forces them to be real tough? Well, Johnny Cash does a song about that. Wow. It's called A Boy Named Sue. A Boy Named Sue, yeah. He okay. But they called my father Spider. Mm. Anyway, so he wasn't like a feely kind of guy or whatever but and he was real hard on me and even after i got clean we got into a few conflicts and i mean when i was using i hit him in the forehead with a 22 ounce straight claw hammer and he came after me like i didn't even hit him my dad was he's a uh, tough guy yeah i mean people feared him and uh we've always fished so but we fished from shore i mean my father won the mommy metropolitan fishing tournament for snook four years in a row who did my father. Oh, your dad. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The biggest snook he ever caught was 49 pounds. A world record, 54. Wow. And I was caught in Costa Rica, not here. Huh. So after, you know, I got clean, I started, you know, doing stuff again and sticking needles in my arm. And I started back. Yeah, you start getting hobbies again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I started fishing again. Not hunting because I was convicted felon and I couldn't have a firearm and all that. That's so, a good boy. Yeah, so I stayed away from that. I want no problems. So, anyways, uh, I had a little boat. It was fifteen foot, and I'd be in the ocean catching sailfish and cobia in a fifteen foot boat. And my dad would come with me, and he goes, "You need a bigger boat, boy." I said, "Well, I don't have the money." He goes, "Well, go looking around," and I found this boat. It was a real nice boat with a diesel engine. Mm-hmm. And I told him I saw this. And uh, he gave me an envelope full of $100 bills. And he says, go get it. Wow. And then. How long have you been clean at this point? Five years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, after that, we wanted a better boat. And I found that. And he gave me an envelope with the money. And I never thought he approved of me or liked me, whatever it was. But I'd hear stories from other people and my mom and that about how he would brag about me. My dad was the same way. I feel like my dad would never really show it to me. But when I wasn't around, he'd be like, oh, man, my kid's the man. Like, he's killing it. But to me, he'd be like, you you know, I get a B. He'd be like, why don't you get an A? Right. You know, I'd become the vice president of, like, college or something at student government. Like, you should be the president, you know. But then when I wasn't around, he'd be like. You know, he's the man. Yeah, my dad did the same thing. And I'm like, hmm. But I think it's a way to push people because sometimes I find myself doing that. And um, my one of my sponsors, this guy sponsored me. And when he would hang up the phone, he would say, I'm proud of you. And he would say that all the time to me. 
and I love you and I'm proud of you. And he would always say it to me. And um, I started implementing that in my relationships with some of my friends. Because sometimes I could be like that. You know, I just push people and push people. And I get it from my father. My father's like that. I push people too. And, you know, I work for myself in construction and I'm very aggressive. And to work, I, I don't say you work for me, you work with me. I'm the same way. And if you work with me, you know, people say, how much are we going to make? How much are you going to pay me? I'm going to say, you're going to start off making a little bit of money, mm-hmm. which more than most people would pay that I, I pay more than most people. And you can make a whole lot. Depends on how good you are. If you can make it through the first day. Because in a few hours, I know if I want him to work with yeah, me anymore or not. I know. So what happens after you make amends to your dad and then he you know, tries to talk to you about it? Well, when I made amends to my dad after that, he didn't really talk to me about it. He just treated me better. He bought me a boat. Gotcha. He so his trust way was being like... nicer to me. And now he still wasn't doing, he wasn't. Uh, Living right. Yeah, he was still selling dope and stuff, smoking crack. My dad was crazy. He would smoke crack in the evening for an hour and then go to sleep. Yeah. I smoke crack with a guy like that. He yeah. would just smoke. I couldn't tell if he was smoking crack or a cigarette. It's wild. He would just smoke it like it was nothing. Right. Well, my dad did that. So anyways, I had about, I don't know, three or four or five years clean. And my mom comes to me and she goes, uh, I can't stop shooting dope and my hair is falling out. Can you help me? Wow, your mom said that. Wow. Because, see, when I got clean, I didn't go to my parents and tell them, well, I'm clean and you should do this. And, you know, they didn't want to hear, you know, I was not a good guy. So I just kept my mouth shut and stayed clean and was showing you instead of telling you. Mm -hmm. When someone's telling me stuff instead of showing me, I'm not too interested. Yeah. So. And it's got to be consistent for a period of time before you can really have an opinion on something. Right. You know, that's why like, you know, doing the pot, because I see a lot of recovery podcasts or all this shit and it's people, and not to say that three years isn't a lot of time, but like if I had three years clean, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing a recovery thing or something like that's why it's not even a recovery based podcast. It's hell as an exit and I'm going to interview some people, but I feel like, you know, I'm, I haven't been clean 12 years. Like I feel like now I can kind of talk on the subject. So you're a newcomer. I'm still a newcomer. <laughs> At least I got double digit clean time. You know, I'm still pretty new, you know? in the scheme of things and um i remember at three years thought like i knew everything you know well i, I well the longer you stay clean the crazier and sicker you get for sure no nah. you don't think so no if you don't do things for your recovery absolutely i think you get crazier and sicker you just get better at like uh accepting it accepting it yeah um uh, i can't say that for me yeah no well you gotta understand when i was new you're, I had a 13-inch mohawk with a razor blade in my ear. Yeah, you just cut off the mohawk. Right. And what I mean that you get crazier is that uh, I think like when I got clean, I would see people with a lot of years clean and think that they had all their ducks in a row and that they were like perfect and like all these things. And then you meet them and you're like, this guy's crazier than me. Not that they're unhealthy or they lie, cheat and steal or like, you know, live some fucked up life, but that uh, we do get better. You know, but we still are addicts. You know, you never like grow out of that. Oh, if someone threatens me and I'm looking at them, I'm thinking of the things I'm going to do to dismember them, Mm -hmm. to send them to the hospital or the morgue. Mm -hmm. I don't think most people think the way I think. Uh, 
you know, if you corner me, I'm just like, nah, it ain't good. Now, I haven't been in a fight since I've been clean. I don't threaten people. I keep my mouth shut usually. You know, this thing I'm hearing now is second step stuff. It said, uh, came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, and I thought that meant, you know, me being wild and physical or whatever it may be. And then I found out what that meant was it's insane for me to think I can get high. And I got that. Mm -hmm. Now it's on to a situation, the decision comes up and I look at it as it really is, not how I might think it is mm -hmm. and say, whoa, that's insane and make a better decision. So because of staying in recovery and working on myself and working the steps time and time again and being at workshops and you know all these things that I still do for recovery, I'm much better. And then I see people, they get a few years clean and then they're all better. They're into making money and, you know, all these different things. And, and hey, making money and all that stuff is great. But I got to remember the number one thing in my life is my recovery. 1,000%. So we didn't really talk about how, you know, the 22-year-old kid shot himself in the head, continued to use for years. How did you get into recovery and start uh, buying into the process, being somebody who's so rebellious? This is what happened. The desperate become sweetly willing. And I got more and more desperate. And I knew I wasn't going to die because of what I've been through. And I left out other stories of the overdoses, cars running me over, everything. And I didn't think recovery was happening either, but... I went to treatment and they started bringing the meetings and they took me to, to recovery meetings and learning some things and still not staying clean. And that lady, honey, that told mm -hmm. me to go to the meetings and sit in the front one day, I'll get this. And that's what happened. And I didn't think it would work. I kind of did it on a, on a like, a whim, like, no, like someone confronted me, a woman confronted me and said, you're a scared little boy and you're going to die and you need to work the steps. I didn't even know this person. I'm like, who, who is she? Mm -hmm. Well, I did it like on a, a dare kind of. I've still been doing it. And as you know, I've told this story before. I've had three sponsors that had more than 20 years clean each that were really involved in recovery and people, they were well-known in recovery and they did a lot of things for recovery and they all three had something in common. They stopped doing things they were supposed to be doing. They started doing things they shouldn't be doing, and they overdosed and died, three, mm -hmm. with more than 20 years clean. Point blank, very simple. So that's why I'm still involved. And like the way you say that is so beautiful and simple because when people ask me, like, do you feel like using, or do you really have to go to these meetings? For me, if I stop doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I'll start doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. And it just like trickles and trickles. And Absolutely. Trickles. You don't wake up one day and, you know, a kilo of heroin on your desk. It's this slow type of process. You know what, Brian? It sounds to me like you're going back to that song by Grandpa Jones mm -hmm. about mend them holes in the fence. Mm -hmm. The devil's got ways. Uh, you got to hear that song. And anybody that listens to this, Google Grandpa Jones gospel and hear that song about the devil fixes it so you can't get back. And just saying, you know, I refer to that as the disease of addiction and recovery. Cool. You know, when I give in and start doing things I shouldn't be doing and stop doing things I should be doing, the next thing you know, 
It's a slippery slope. It's over. Yeah, and that's how we got into the whole mess of doing drugs is thinking, like, I met someone the other day who's just getting clean, and they're like, oh, I'm never going to do drugs again. Hmm. And I, I was like, like, that's not recovery. You know, recovery is, well, if I don't do these things, I will use, and I'm okay with that. That's why I do these things. It's just like uh, staying in shape. If I stop going to the gym and it's not eating healthy, I'm not going to be in shape. And I'm aware that there are outside situations that can pull me away from the gym, like work, like a girlfriend, something bad happens, you can injure yourself, and you don't want to ever fully walk away from it. And if you think that you're never going to fully walk away from it, you just did. Because the thought process of it's never going to happen to me is the same ego process that we did drugs in the first place. I'm never going to be addicted. Because only a crackhead would be like, well, I could smoke crack one time and not get addicted, right? Like only an addict will like do drugs and think that, well, other people get addicted, but not me. So that's the thinking that starts us into drugs. Well, I've told you this before. You've heard me say this before. It's like my mind tells me, it was just a phase you're going through, John. Mm -hmm. This don't apply to you. And you've been in recovery for almost 33 years. Why are you still in? What are you doing here on a Sunday speaking with Brian mm -hmm. on this podcast? I don't even know what a podcast is. I kind of <laughs> do. Mm -hmm. And I'll check it out. But I do it because it keeps it alive. It keeps me entertained with the recovery thing of what's really important mm -hmm. and what's really going on because I can, you know, look over that fence back to Grandpa Jones' song so quickly mm -hmm. and be enticed. And I tell people, you know, I got a lot of little sayings that I got. I tell people, dude, get down off the fence and stop looking in those people's yard. Yeah. You know, because... I can, you know, I remember being new, the phone rooms were popular. There was guys in the program that were homeless, and now all of a sudden no, they're a millionaire yeah. within a year. And I mean a millionaire within a year. Mm -hmm. And I saw that quite a bit, but I also saw a lot of them go to prison. I saw a exactly. lot of them used, too. I don't like fast money. I never have. It, like, it doesn't feel good. When someone's like, oh, you can make all this money, da-da-da, I don't like it. I want to make it real slow and over time, you know? I just want to do it the right way. Mm-hmm legal and yeah. feel good about myself about it because if i do see an addict or someone who's an addict or alcoholic or whatever can't get away with stuff normal people who don't stick needles in their arms and bullets in their head can do whatever they want mm -hmm. but i'm not in that category i can't do things i'm not supposed to be doing because of and i can't do it in moderation the way to get away yes. the way to get away with this to do it in a moderation. You know, if you steal five dollars from your job, whatever, but if you're like us, five dollar turns into five hundred really quick. Yes, because if you're able to embezzle a thousand bucks and get away with it, you're gonna do it again and again and again until you get caught. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. For sure. Just the way it is. How did your spirituality go from you know kind of believing in god to being a christian i didn't know you were that much of a christian yeah well what does a christian look like are they really good looking older gentlemen like myself no you probably look more like a christian than most people i'm teasing no i just uh you know how it is you know in, rec in recovery we don't really talk about religious beliefs and people keep them to themselves a lot and i just haven't known that about you let me ask you a question do you go to meetings religiously Yes. Well, then you're religious. 
Don't tell nobody in recovery that because yeah, they might be they offended. Get, they get scared. Yeah, I like go, go back to talking about fucking your mom. Right. <laughs> I like the thing about in the beginning when I was in recovery and all the meetings they would say the Lord's Prayer, and now they don't nice do it anymore because out. people got offended. Yeah. Just like in the United States, I don't want to get on the government thing too much. You know, when I was in school, we said the Pledge of Allegiance. We don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. I didn't know that. Yeah. We do that. Absolutely not. I did not. I think we do the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. Google gonna, it. I'll fact check you later. Google it. I, I, bet they, I bet they don't. All right. Maybe you know more than me. Um, What's it say on coins and money and God we trust? Yeah. That'll be gone soon. Yeah. But the religious thing that my Christian beliefs, a girl. Of course. There you I know. Go. If I knew you want to get laid, you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. So I'm in recovery. I meet this hot little blonde. Uh huh. How long ago is this? Over 33 years ago. Wow. You've been Christian for 33 years. Uh, not as solid in the beginning. Of it course. It was still kind wishy -washy. of wishy washy. Wishy washy in the beginning. Yeah. Now, it's, I mean, I have a Bible study I go to with my friends once a week. Wow. And it's awesome. You can you can come on it. It's on Zoom. I, you guys will let me. Yeah, we'll let you in. All right. How much? Uh, Two hundred bucks. Okay. No, it's free. Uh, the guy that leads it, I used to shoot dope with. Okay. Very cool. I love that. Yeah, he went to Teen Challenge, which is a heavy duty Christian mm -hmm. drug program. I mean, his story. Matter of fact, I I'll get him, him to podcast. speak for you when you hear this guy. <laughs> Put him on. I'm excited. Yeah, his nickname was Lobster. Wow. So I go into these meetings and I meet this hot little blonde and, you know, whatever. And so she's like, well, we're going to go to my father's house and meet my father. Her father was a preacher. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. But, you know, whatever, you know. So at church he went to was like 100 yards from his house in Miami Lakes. We go to the church and um, the church with him, with her stepmother and her father and me and her and i'm like very uncomfortable and i wasn't staying clean i was going to the meetings but i wasn't staying clean and uh i mean i might have had a week or two clean i don't remember and they're talking about you know uh come up here and accept jesus christ in your heart as your personal savior and all this and i'm like very very uncomfortable mm -hmm. and then he says well, some of you are probably out there thinking this is embarrassing to come up there and you shouldn't do it. And the devil's keeping you in your seat and all this stuff. I'm like, how did he know? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. So anyways, I went up there, accepted Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal savior. Was it that solid then? No. Did I have, you know, in the Bible it talks about uh, seeds getting thrown on the dirt yep. and the rock and getting trampled on. And that's where I was with then. And then, you know, it changed from one form or the other. And I don't speak about being a Christian a whole lot uh, in the recovery process because I don't want to offend anybody with their little feelings. Of course. But it's so funny in the steps of almost every fellowship I've been in, it says God. We do talk about God a lot. And I think, you know, it was just like this podcast. Like when I had five years clean, I wouldn't say God when I spoke. I wouldn't talk about my belief in God. One thing I would say about people that have seen consistency relapse is they did not work all 12 steps with a sponsor and they had no relationship with a higher power or they didn't really like heart on the relationship with God as much and they focused a lot of, on the people and the program and a lot of like the other bullshit. My sponsor told me 
the day I met my, and now I can tell in the pocket, my sponsor was a lesbian woman from AA. Mm. Okay. It makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And she like knew what was happening. Didn't fuck around. She knew what was happening. She looked at me, she goes, you need to get a reliance upon God. You need to do it now. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh no, I'm not selling incense at the airport with a tambourine. (laughs) This is freaky. This is bad. And I thought about anybody that represented Christianity or religion or anything. And none of them ever seemed to be like they were really suffering. And I was suffering. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do what they tell me and we'll see what happens. Same thing happened to me. My sponsor was like, you know, I would call him and I'd be like, hey, I'm calling to check in. He's like, did you pray today? I'd be like, no. He's like, don't call me unless you prayed because if I don't answer, you got to have something else. And he really instilled that into me. And I was like, I don't know what to pray to. And he'd be like, I don't give a fuck. Pray. And it was so crazy seeing someone who's really into God and also cursing. Like and, me? Yeah. And, and and that's when I started to see, like, it's like when I started reading. Like, I didn't like reading as a kid because I hated books. And then I started realizing that there's books that are way more fucked up than anything out there. You know, and I started to like books. I got a book for you. Yeah. It's called The Screw Tape Letters. The Screw Tape Letters? It's by C.S. Lewis. I'll check it out. And I just seen the play last year. Cool. In person. It's good. Oh. My friend Lobster, who does that I'm in the Bible, the Bible study, study with, Richard. I remember when his mother died. She was a terrible alcoholic. She just died on the floor, mm-hmm. maybe 40 years old. And he came home and he said, what's that stain on the floor? And the cop goes, that's where your mom died. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he had Crazy story. a tough story, but he told me about C.S. Lewis and the screw tape letters. And basically, C.S. Lewis' best friend is the guy who writ- wrote The Hobbit, mm-hmm. whoever that guy is, anyways. Mm-hmm. And they were hanging out in a pub discussing God many years ago. And C.S. Lewis goes, well, I'm going to investigate this and prove there is no God. And when he looked into it, he found out there is a God. That's cool. And he's written a lot of books, but the screw tape letters is awesome. Yeah, it's very hard for me to see that some people really don't believe in and because even if you believe in nothing, there's no such thing. Even air is something. Even particles inside is something. Like you can't believe in nothing. Uh, even the fact that we're like spinning on a globe in space, the fact that it's even happening. This guy was talking the other day, and he was like, "The fact that this is all going on right now would be like if you took apart a Rolex by every little piece." shook it up in a box, and it came out of Rolex. And he was like, you can say that it's coincidence, but what would your, like, my thing is like, what would your life look like if you believed that there are good in people? What Like, what does it do to your life? Not so much on like what the belief is, you know, like what's the practical use of this? If you have these beliefs, they improve your life. Whether the beliefs are real or not real, the evidence is that they do improve your life in a positive way. You know what's funny? They take the readings of the Bible and Christianity out of the schools, but when you go to prison, they give you a Bible. <laughs> That's cool. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's still Bibles in hotel rooms, right? Gideon's Bible, song about it, Rocky Raccoon by the Beatles. That's cool. When did you get into all this punk shit? The punk music? Yeah. Uh, also, always- I'm, a, I'm a concert promoter. And I spoke in recovery or while using or both. Oh, I've always been into it, but like, you know, the drugs took everything. My addiction took everything. But once I got clean, got it all back. I got back, dude. 
you've never been to my house. No. In my man cave, I have over 250 pieces of memorabilia. Wow. I got stuff that I've had musicians come to my house and like one guy was crying. Wow. Okay. Name your top five favorite bands right now. Well, I like just to make it clear. I don't just like punk rock. I like rock. I like all music except I'm not into classical and stuff like that. Some jazz. Uh, you don't like rap music, do you? I like uh, the Beastie Boys. Okay, <laughs> I've seen them dead up against the stage with no one in front of me. Wow. Yeah, and I got phenomenal pictures in my man cave. Okay. I like Two Live Crew. Okay. Okay. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Who. You're not, you're not fucking with Lil TJ? Nah. <laughs> He's good. Bro. I like Eminem. I like Eminem a lot. He's one of my favorites. He wrapped a rope around his penis and jumped from a tree? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Hell Maybe yeah. I should try that. You should. So, uh, you know, The Who, but it did punk, black flag. It's tattooed on one of my hands. X is tattooed on the other. And I'm, most of these people I'm mentioning, I'm friends with them. I've met them. I've hung mm -hmm. out. They've been to my house. I've been you know, backstage with them and sign, you know, and this stuff come because I got a All recovery. recovery. I was at a show and I had backstage passes and they said all access and the, the big people came out and they go, we're not on her. No one's coming back. Nothing's happening. I'm like, wow, this sucks. And this big tall dude behind all them that's like on the stage, their cameraman goes, hey, you bring him in. It was my friend. And he's in, he's in, in the program as well. He's a cameraman. And his father's one of the most famous newscasters in the world. So I'm not going to say his name. But anyway, so I got to get in. I'm standing on the stage with Stephen Van Zandt. You probably don't know who he is. You've ever seen The Sopranos? No. Never seen the show The Sopranos? I never got into it, bro. Well, I was on the drugs. one guy, Sylvia... That's Steven Van Zandt. He's also okay. Bruce Springsteen's lead guitar player. Mm -hmm. They call him Little Steven. Anyways, he's a promoter as well. I'm standing on the stage talking with him, and all these bands are there. And just like I've done some incredible stuff with the music that's exciting. I mean, like when X played down here in Miami, that's a Zine Cervanka, Billy Zoom, John Doe. Uh, they had these jacks. I'm a pretty good-sized boy. As they'd say, I'm husky. Mm -hmm. So another term for fat. So I wanted these jackets that were cool, but they didn't have any that were big enough for me, you know. And I ride motorcycles too, and you got your jacket's got to be big. And uh, the next thing I know, my ex old lady that lives in California that owns PNX News, Punk's News, gets together with Xene Cervanka, and they send me a jacket that's. Uh, a triple X leather jacket embroidered. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. I'll show it to you one day. And all this stuff comes from being recovery, and my life is exciting. I mean, my son's going to be 10 years old at wow. the end of April. He doesn't have a gun, does he? No, but he shoots guns. He shoots oh, yes, guns. he does. He has a pellet gun. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we went out last weekend riding four wheelers up by Lake Okeechobee, and he's like, Daddy, bring your gun. We'll get a deer. That's I wasn't cool. going to bring the gun, but I did because he asked me to. <laughs> what a sweetheart. This really shocked me. My son is a girl. What do you mean? You didn't know that, Brian? No. Reagan is a female. What do you mean? What part didn't you understand? He's transgender? 
I don't know if you call him transgender. A few years ago, he says, I don't want to live my life as a girl. I want to live really? like a boy. Absolutely. I did not know that. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I don't know how I feel, but it sure as hell shocked me. <laughs> wow. It's like my mouth. He voiced that to you? Yeah. I had no clue about what to do or not do about it. I'm thinking, well, you know, it is what it is. He'll make the decisions. Does he dress like a girl? No. You've no. seen him. Yeah. I just, I don't know if this was like no a No one knows thing. he's a girl except, you know, us. But he feels like a girl in his head. No. Boy. So. Totally acts like a boy. Everything. When we go you forward. You would never know. You would never know. Wow. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And. He's got a therapist. I take him to therapy once a week. And people that know me, I mess with everybody. If you're gay, I'm going to tease you about it. If you're straight, I'm going to tease you about it. If you're black, I'm going to tease you about it. Whatever it is, if there's something I can ruffle your feathers, that's just what I do. But it's nothing to hurt anybody's feelings. And I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist. None of that. People not homophobic. That, peep, no. The people that know me that think that, some people do think that about me. They're totally wrong. So I am can get off on this. My first wife was Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. My second wife was a black Cuban. My third wife was a country girl. And my fourth wife was a Jew. Oh. So I'm clear. You Did, can't mess with me with any of that. But your family was was pretty racist, right? Did you? Oh grow, yeah. You grew oh, up yeah. in racism. I grew up. How, how did did they ever say anything to you growing up or anything like that? Like when you would date outside the race or something? You mean like my dad didn't come to the wedding? Oh, he didn't come to the wedding. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I was bullied and I got messed with because I was little. I was only child. So, like, if I see somebody harassing somebody because they're different or whatever it is, man, I, they're going to have a problem with me. Mm -hmm. I'll step into that situation. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that because I don't like that. And I don't, you know, a lot of people think that this is a new thing, but I truly believe that people just were so scared to, to say stuff like Absolutely. this. It's not something new. I mean, you have all sorts of shit going on in the middle ages that fucking are beyond what we do today, you know? Absolutely. And like the thing with my son and we call my son, you know, and then I had some Christians like, Oh, you know, that's against the Bible. And you got to like, uh, some people get a little information about something and think they know everything. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of information about a lot of things. And I think I know a little, mm -hmm. and that's real safe for me. I don't, you know, I'm not the boss. And I don't believe in police and other people's fucking beliefs or whatever. Or, you know, if you read the Bible, it says if you wear like a fur inside, you go to hell or whatever and all these different things. Really? I never heard that one. Yeah. Pretty mm. sure. Mm. If you wear fur inside, you'll go to hell. Okay. You never heard that? No, but you got to come to our Bible study. You'll I'll come. I, I go to church. I go to church pretty religiously. You'll hear things that you didn't know because my friend knows so much about the Bible. Mm -hmm. When he's talking, when we're reading stories out there, he'll explain what was going on. It was 13 miles time, away yeah. from this place. This guy was this. These people all hated him. And you don't know any of that unless my friend was explaining that to you. Yeah. I like the history part of it because a lot of times you don't have the context or it's also written in Hebrew. So if you don't know the Hebrew sayings or just like, you know, what it means in Hebrew, you might not get the English translation either. Do you know who recognized Jesus or God quickly and more abruptly than anybody that's mentioned in the Bible? Who? 
all the demons and the devil and all the bad people. All the bad people saw They that, knew right away. That he was, I mean, like when that time when Jesus cursed the demons out into this, uh, this guy and put the demons in the pigs. Mm -hmm. And the, you ever read that story? Mm -hmm. No. As soon as the, the, the guy was obsessed with demons, as soon as he seen Jesus, he, he said, oh my God, it's, it's you know, he, they knew yeah, right they away. Knew. All right. Well, I appreciate you, John. Thanks for coming and doing the Thank show. Thank you very much. You, I had a good time hanging out with your yeah, brother. Good absolutely. to see you. God bless. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.